Hey, good morning, Founder Church. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry, and it's really a privilege for me to be up here today. I mean, I love the Christmas season, and uh, I'm probably not alone in that. I'll go ahead and sound like an old person, but man, where did the year go? Like, it's just crazy that the advent of Advent is upon us now. And in the next couple of weeks, as we lead up to Christmas Eve, one service here, 4 p.m., you will not want to miss it. As we lead up to Christmas Eve, we're really going to be looking at an Advent series where we preach around the coming of our Lord, and we see Advent as something that maybe some people are familiar with in your church of origin or within uh, the type of religious or spiritual climate that you grew up in. Maybe you went to a church that had an Advent candle or a family that did Advent inside the home. And for some of you who grew up in a different kind of context or maybe without a Christian context, uh, we're going to journey together through Advent in our own Fondren Church way. And really just to define what we're talking about here the next few days is this, is Advent is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So around this Advent season, I want to show you a couple of things Oh, I had two pieces of paper right here. Our Advent guides that I placed there on purpose, they're no longer there. Our uh, Josh McAlpin, coming in clutch. Thank you, sir. Advent guide. I don't want us to have worked on this and for you not to have seen it with your own eyeballs. So you may have picked one of these up on the way in. Uh, if you have small children at home or medium-sized or even large children at home, you may want to pick up the family version of the Advent guide, which is located in our kids' area. And then this is for you to journey along with. Our staff wrote week-by-week devotionals that we think could bless you in this season. So Advent, we know we look forward to the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And who is that in the Christian context? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about Advent's great things that have come, that have entered in, and they've changed the way that things have worked, have been received, and the world has really been different after them. Uh, I'm a little bit of a movie nerd. I don't watch as many of them as I used to now that I have a small child at home. But in the glory of movie past, you could find me watching all sorts of terrible movies every day of the week. But a great movie and a timeless classic there, The Wizard of Oz. And uh, you may have heard in lore that The Wizard of Oz was the first color movie, or at least the first movie that used color. And that would not be a true statement. It's what a lot of people think, it's popular belief, but the Technicolor Corporation had actually been making movies in color since 1917. If you're familiar with American history, 1917 is not necessarily a great time to start anything from a financial or economic perspective. So color movies really were few and far between, and then The Wizard of Oz hit the scene in 1939, and it changed the game for everyone. It introduced color, vibrancy, particularly with the ability to draw out uh, lands like a fantastical land of Oz. So although color had been around for a while, it really was the advent of this movie that changed everything. My grandfather was born in 26, 1926, and I asked him at one point, I think when I was in school, learning about The Wizard of Oz, or maybe it was on TV as it is sometimes, and he talked about how it really changed the world. The climate of entertainment was shaped because of this movie. Again, the introduction of something that was around, but in a fuller sense. We see this in the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, born in a manger as a baby, that the infinite God would come into a fixed point in time. The fullness of himself. Fully God and fully man, a divine mystery. And here's what I want us to encounter together today. If you're like me, when you had that passage read to you today, your eyes probably glazed over. Maybe you thought about where you were going to lunch 
Or maybe at best you thought, oh, this is a great, warm Christmas passage. I'm glad Christmas is here. And then you immediately thought about how you have to repeat everything you just did for Thanksgiving in even a fuller sense in Christmas. But I don't want us to lose the wonder of the incarnation. That's what I want us to live with in the balance of our time. How, Lord, can we see the power of your coming and treasure it? Yes, in these next weeks leading up to Christmas, but as a marker for our life as people who are following him, committed to his will and his ways in our life as people who follow Jesus, little Christ's followers of the way. How could we remember the power of his coming and how that shapes the way that we follow him? Wonder, as we find it in the New Testament, is this Greek word, thematso, that's the root. And it's this concept that the people who encountered this wonder in this passage in Luke 2, they were amazed, they were astonished, they were surprised, they were in admiration, and they marveled. This wonder is is something that we would see and, and that we would think, okay, yeah, well, I wonder about this, or I wonder about that. And that's not wonder. Wonder in the Greek, wonder, this thematso, is a deep stirring that once you've beheld this, once you see this, you cannot go on to the next thing. Regardless of how many times you've seen that, been there, done that, this wonder is something that we keep with us. And if you're like me, you would admit that the wonder of the Lord coming has kind of gone stale in your life that we are very prone to move past how remarkable this should be and go on into the land of the ordinary. But there are some things in our life that have wonder that kind of stick. I have one child. My wife has had one child for us. Uh, When people are like, we had a kid. I didn't do anything. I was just there. But when uh, I know people have multiple children, the moment where a new baby comes into the world is still as remarkable the second time as it was the first time. Now, some of you have a lot of kids. I don't know what it's like the sixth time. I don't, I don't ask too many of you about that. But I know that the second time is just about as good as the first time. And you know what you never hear whenever someone delivers a baby into the world? The doctor cleans the baby up and they give it to you. I never hear a story of a husband looking at his wife and going, all right, babe, well, it's nice to have another one of these. Get up out of bed, put your pants on, I'll get the car. <laughs> no, there's a moment of wonder there that God would bring a life into the world. And I think about my daughter that I love, that I have the privilege and the responsibility to shepherd knowing the investment I make in her life is one of the most important investments I can make. There's a wonder that we keep with us and sometimes wonder that just slips by. But we would see this in Luke 2, that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Even secondhand knowledge of the coming of God to a fixed point in time was something that made people wonder. And we see further down in Luke 2, that his father and his mother, they marveled, they wondered at all that was said about Jesus. So I want to point us to three things today. The first is where the wonder came. The second is what the wonder means. And the third is how we keep the wonder. First, when we think about where the wonder came, we got to think about the political backdrop. There was a lot of stuff about funny Roman names and census and things like that at the beginning that if you've been around church for a minute, you might have, but just for us all to be on the same page here, we see that the ruler of the day, someone who worked for Augustus Caesar, would create a census that forced people to go back to where they were from so they'd be counted for records and tax purposes to make their nation state work well. And we see this, that Augustus is the uh, sort of the king that's depicted here as Dr. Luke 
writes this second chapter of Luke. We see that Augustus is the supreme ruler, and if you're a student of history in any way, or you've lived anywhere but under a rock, you would probably know that Augustus Caesar was a great in very many ways. The great nephew of Julius Caesar, he was left as his heir apparent, and after the dust had settled from Julius Caesar's betrayal, we see Augustus on the throne. He had a different name before, but the name given to him as a Caesar was Augustus, and the word Augustus is this concept of supremacy, that he would be the greatest, the purest. He was even called in some uh, descriptions the son of a god. So you would see this Augustus as someone who would assault the very Jewish world, The Jews, when they heard that Augustus had ascended and that he had taken the name Augustus, they were revolted because they would say that only one is supreme, the Lord God. So we see this false Augustus moving in a way that seemed his way, but in fact was necessary for the coming of the true Augustus, the true supreme one, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem. Augustus the Great, it was said that he would find it brick and leave it marble. Little did he know that he helped usher into the world one who would bring beauty from ashes. And we see this, John Buchan, he was uh, an English historian and politician. He wrote this, at Augustus' funeral, men comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a god and that gods did not die. But we see this, that Christ's coming was to proclaim a kingdom mightier than the Roman, and to tell of a world saved not by man who became God, but by God who became a man. We see the beauty of this kingdom, which we would say flows in reverse. But we see the power of the way that the Lord would work salvation and coming to his people. The second thing we see is this, that he would be born into Bethlehem, the town of David. If you're a student of the Old Testament or you're familiar with multiple prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, this was one of the most important, that it would say, you, Bethlehem, are little among the princes of Israel, but from you will come the anointed one, the Messiah. And we see in Bethlehem, in its very name, yes, the town of David, David, who would precede Jesus as one where there was political and social and economic flourishing in the life of David. Israel was at its peak and its ascension during the life of David. So the Jewish people who were under subjugation from this Augustus, this one who would claim, I am God, not your God, I am God, I make the rules here. They would long for a truer and better David to come and to make all things right and not just right, but better than they were before. But we see him come to this Bethlehem in Hebrew, the house of bread. Bethlehem was this fertile area in the midst of really just desert all around it. It was this little hub of life in the midst of vast wasteland. And we see our Lord Jesus come in to a place of darkness and suffering in our world and bring life in a small way in his origin. And the third thing that we would see are the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. That he was wrapped in, I appreciated Lily said this, swaddling cloths. I think we made it swaddling clothes because it sounds better, but it was essentially a cloth. We see him born in a manger because there was no place for them anywhere else. And regardless of how we try to construct that this could have been normal in the ancient world, it was not ideal in the ancient world, and not ideal for God to be born 
in any world. We think about Jesus as coming, as scripture would say, in the fullness of time or at just the right time. A world without central air conditioning and the assistance of a hospital for delivery does not feel like the fullness of time to me. But we see our Lord intimately subject himself in a humble way. That he was not too good to be born as a baby and then to be born outside of a palace, outside of luxury and relative obscurity. What a great God we can follow to know that none is too far from his reach and none is too low for him to stoop to redeem. So the next thing, what wonder means. When I think about what something means, I think about its origin, its substance, right? A couple of months ago, you probably were like me, and you were disgusted whenever you learned that the European Food Health and Safety Organization had decried things like Sour Patch Kits and the staple of my childhood, honey buns. (laughs) Why? Because there's something in the substance of these that apparently they say alters your DNA. That could explain what's wrong with me. (laughs) I've been looking for answers for a while. I don't know what that even means. (laughs) But apparently it alters your DNA. Or at least that's what the Europeans think. But the substance of this is something that changes you, allegedly. How does the substance of Jesus' coming change how we behold him and how we follow him in wonder? The first is this, great joy. We've come to bring you good news of great joy, is what the angel says. I loved this last season in the life of our church where we went through a series called How Happiness Happens. And I stood up here in moments where I host and where I preach, and I said, man, I I don't know that you guys really know how remarkable this is, that a church would say, we want you to be happy. There's something about Uh, The church, both in its history and its current state today, where we're low on joy, we're low on enjoyment. And it's fascinating because it's not a great apologetic to me about the power of Jesus Christ to change a life. No one's really compelled by, hey, come and be as miserable as we are. (laughs) That's never worked in my evangelism and I doubt it's worked in yours. But what a beautiful thing it is that we can see that from the very moment Jesus entered the scene, that he would come to bring great joy. Life and life to the full. And so many of you, man, I'm grateful for the way that you lead and you invest in our church and you invest in my life and you show that even though life has been difficult for you and you've gone your own way, that things have been done to you and you've done things that you can find great joy in who Jesus is and who he would help us become. Great joy. The second thing, Glory bound up in Jesus' coming is this glory. It's glory for God's glory and glory for our good. It is hard to break apart God's glory and our great joy. As a pastor that I love says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Could that be true for us, church, that we would see his glory as the driving force for our life. That in the way that you work and in the way that you neighbor and the way that you worship him and the way that you live and you purchase and you do all the things that you do, that you would count yourself as a contributor to God's glory. 
What a beautiful thing for us to consider at Christmas. Uh, There's a quote that I love here from Athanasius. He was a fourth century uh, church father. He was present at a lot of the important things that happened there in the fourth century about how we got our Bible and what good doctrine is. And he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And here's what he writes to show this beautiful picture of how our good and God's glory are bound together. He would write this. For what use is existence to the creature, that's us, if it cannot know its maker? How could men be reasonable beings if they had no knowledge of the word and reason of their father through whom they had received their being? They would be no better than the beasts had they no knowledge save earthly things. And why should God have made them at all if he had not intended to know them? Isn't that the cry of the world? God, are you there? And if you're there, do you care? But in fact, The good God has given them a share in what? His own image. That is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's made even themselves after the same image and likeness. And he finishes with this. Why? Simply in order that through this gift of godliness in themselves, they may be able to perceive the image absolute that is the word himself and through him to apprehend the Father which knowledge of their maker is for men the only real happy and blessed life. What is this? Let's bring it to 2022. God has made us to know him. He has seen us to know his glory and to join in this work of our deep enjoyment of his glorious work. The last thing, peace, peace. Man, can I tell you like the world needs peace and not in a beauty pageant, contestant, world peace kind of way, although even that is a cry for what we need. You know this, and the world tries to manufacture peace. I think about my guy LeBron James, who put a lot of money into Calm. It's an app that you've probably been targeted on if you've been on the internet in the last two years. And what is it? It's a meditation app. It's about reflection. We feel this need to slow. My wife, Carly, has got a birthday four days after Christmas. It's just a terrible time to have a birthday. So I'm always like, all right, here come all the gifts at once, basically. And uh, I was looking at some spa packages at a spa that I know some of you have gone to. And they're literally at this place. They offer a quiet room. I'm like, man, I can get you a quiet room for a lot cheaper than that. But they offer a quiet room. What is the premise there? It's that we need something to help us box out the noise around us and the noise inside of us. This peace that is bound up in the coming of the Lord. And here are two things I want us to look at in this peace that bound up in Christ's coming is the power for peace in these two big areas we see in this passage. Ourselves internally and in the world externally. And this link is critical. That one without the other is a cheap version of what Christ came to bring. Deep peace inside of us, right? Like, don't you want the voices in your head to stop? Aren't you tired of the constant hustle and bustle, the need to achieve and to prove yourself, to validate your worth? It is crippling, friends. God is doing a great work in my life, and I pray that that would extend to you, that we can rest in the peace of his providence, that we can know him 
And that when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of the Son. That our worth is not from the things that we do, that our substance is changed because of the work of Jesus. An internal peace, a deep shalom, the Hebrew would say. It's that all things are right in your world. That's a Jewish greeting that they would say to one another. They'd walk up, there's no real Jewish concept for hello, what's up? Instead, the greeting is, how's your peace? So that's a question I'd ask you today. How is your peace? And are you submitting yourself to Jesus to be the provider and the perfecter of that peace? And then peace with the world around us, peace with men, among men, which whom he's pleased to dwell. We know that the peace is here for us often, but is the peace really here for the world around you? You might have had Thanksgiving with someone that you have got a lot of animosity with. You've been bad to them. They've been bad to you. Life's been bad to you both. Maybe there were people who weren't at your table that you long would be. Maybe you'd long that your table would be a place of invitation, a place of love, a place of mercy. We see God being able to reconcile people who were sinful, far away from him, who are made in his image but rejected him. How much more can we long for the restoration and the reconciliation of the people around us? He has given us the cross to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. And if Jew and Gentile could come together in the early church, if sinner and a holy God can come together, How much can we come together with the people around us? Let's leave our worldview on the table. Let's leave our convictions about what people should and shouldn't do. And let's seek to have a whole relationship with them. Now, a holy relationship with them, but a whole relationship with them. Are we following in Jesus' way to bring peace inside and peace outside? How can we be kingdom builders, not only to improve ourselves, not only to see ourselves become more fully in line with who Jesus is, but to see our very world, your very family, your very workplace, your very neighborhood, your very city, transformed with a whole peace that God would want to offer us. Matthew Henry would talk about peace like this. He would say, The peace that Christ gives is infinitely more valuable than that which the world gives. The world's peace begins in ignorance, it consists with sin, and it ends in endless troubles. But Christ's peace begins in grace, it consists with no allowed sin, and it ends at length in everlasting peace. As is the difference between a killing lethargy and a reviving, refreshing sleep, such is the difference between Christ's peace and the world's peace. Do you want peace? Let's be peace bringers. And the last thing I want to point you to is how we keep the wonder. How do we keep this front of mind that God would come to a fixed point in time, subject himself to weakness and to frailty, that he would choose a human body, that he would suffer and have no place to lay his head, he would say of his own ministry. That Jesus would embrace a life of suffering and humanity, fully God, limitless, yes, but he embraced human limits. How can we keep that wonder that even in our sin, in our own way, 
God would choose to come so that he could make things right between us. Every other faith would say, I am God, you, you work your way to me. Be good enough, act good enough. Only the true faith, only Jesus Christ would say, I am God and I'm come to you. How do we embrace that and keep the wonder? Well, we anticipate what he wants to do. This is what we see in Luke 2. Five things that I want to draw out of this passage for us. We anticipate what he wants to do. We see this, that the shepherd said, let's go over. There's a marker there in the original language that doesn't necessarily translate anything, but it's basically like an exclamation mark in every point of the sentence that it touches. Let's go over right now. We cannot wait. Let's go see this thing that's happened. And we see Later, that in the temple, Simeon was there, a prophet, one who was longing for the consolation, that's the fullness of Israel, for all things to be made right, the thing that Christ was coming to do. That he was righteous and devout, and he was waiting there. He was anticipatory. He said, Lord, what would you have me do? And I love the DNA of our church because one of our early values is prayerful mission. Not just let's go, but God, how would you want us to go? What would you want us to do? God, shape us as a church and shape us as people. How can we be who you want us to be where we are? They would anticipate that Jesus would have things for them to do. So can I ask you that? Are you open-handed with your life, with your plans, with your passions? Yes, even with your money. Are you open-handed? Would you receive what God would want to do in your life through the presence of the Holy Spirit, one who's a counselor and a comforter and a guide and a friend? Are you receptive to what he might want to work in you? We anticipate. And the second, we worship. We worship. We're committed to him. We long for more of him. We honor him. We exalt him. Yes, in singing, but in our whole lives. Look, I was in Vault Hemingway Stadium on Thursday night for the Egg Bowl, the Battle of the Golden Egg, and I saw people so locked into what's going on. And I was there. Like, I like football too, you know? But I would just say together, like one center to another, perhaps, let's check our motives here, right? Let me ask you a question. What's Lane Kiffin done for you? <laughs> Besides, maybe give some of you an aneurysm. Like, I need to ask Elon to block some of you on Twitter because it's just been ridiculous this week. The second thing, right? If you're a Mississippi State person, what's Dan Mullen done for you? I mean, I guess gotten you a game, but you were going to fire him a couple of weeks ago. If you're a Southern Miss fan, I have a question for you. Why? Secondly, <laughs> what's Will Hall done for you, right? But we, we see these things that we love and we long for them, right? They're good things for us to behold and to invest our time in, sure. But how much more so should we love and treasure the living God? What are our true objects of worship? We see this, that Jesus was brought into the temple on the eighth day. He was circumcised, as was the custom. Worship was integral to Jesus coming into the world. His family offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice that poor people would offer. Not a sheep, not a ram, but instead two turtle doves or a young pigeon. Even in a difficult situation in the life of Jesus' family, we would still see worship and sacrifice. After this, we see Simeon, he would look at Jesus and he would say, my eyes have seen your salvation. To see Jesus is to see salvation. Is that shaping your internal world? Is that shaping your faith? And we see Anna who was there in the temple. She was fasting and praying night and day, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
And the word there that's used, I don't want us to miss this, the word giving thanks there is only used one other time in the Bible, that specific word. And it's when the temple was established. And we see here as the temple and God's work in the world is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In that very moment, she gave thanks for what God had brought into completion in the person of Jesus. The next thing is that we make known, we are committed to sharing this wonder. Man, the moments in my life that have been the most, uh, I'd say, fulfilling in a way, exhilarating definitely, have been moments where I've been in evangelism. I preached about the parable of the sower this summer, and I threw candy at people, and that was probably shocking for some of you. But we see in this that there is this, this depth, this wonder that we can behold to say, I have tasted and seen that the bread of life is good. Would you like to share in this? We make known in word and in deed. We see that they brought good news. The angels, that's where we get evangelism from. That word, they brought the good news. And we see that these shepherds, they made known what was happening. They saw it and they shared it. And then when they returned, we see this return with a zeal. They go back and they're changed by what they'd seen. For they had heard and they had seen just as it had been said to them. They saw God deliver on his wonder. The next thing is this, that we trust his ways even if we know what's coming takes time. There's a picture here of John Stott on the left and Billy Graham on the right. There's a story that I love. It helps me think about how right my view of God is sometimes. John Stott came over from England to do some revivals and campus ministry with Billy Graham in 1958. And it was right around Christmas, Billy Graham invited John Stott into their home and uh, he celebrated with the Graham family. John Stott was from England, like I said, and there were some oddities about an American Christmas. He received a couple of gifts that morning. One was a watch, which he treasured for the rest of his life. And the second was, a, well, it was a stick of deodorant. This seems like a weird gift. It's kind of what you put in your children's socks. I feel like I would be insulted as a grown man if someone else gave me deodorant. But the story goes, he got a stick of deodorant. And he'd held this weird plastic tube, not really sure what it was, because deodorant had it made it over the pond at that point. So he's holding this thing in his hand, and he looks at it, and he reads, Dio Durant, too smart for his own good, John Stott. Goes to Latin, Dio, the word for God. And he goes to Durant, a French word, which he imagines means gift. And he turns the stick of deodorant to Billy Graham and he says, is this supposed to be the gift of God? <laughs> and let me ask you, in your life, have there been moments where you would look at your circumstance and you would say, is this supposed to be the gift of God? The addiction in my family, the brokenness, my own war with sin in my life, is this supposed to be the gift of God? We misunderstand our pain as his cruelty. And we forsake that we can see over the long arc of history, God is faithful to his people. And we can track it in Jesus' coming to the little town of Bethlehem. That he would not be too good to endure pain himself. That he would suffer more than anyone else has ever suffered in his death on the cross. What a beautiful gift we have in Christ the true gift of God, that in our pain and in our suffering, 
we have one who has done the same and has the power to shape us in it and deliver us through it. It might not be what we want it to look like, but it will be the gift of God in our life. I invite the band up here. I want to point you to this last thing. It's treasure. That we treasure the gift of God in our life. We treasure the wonder of a God who came near. We see this in Luke 2. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him there in a manger, because there is no place for him in the end, the swaddling cloth. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in a swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. Seems like a weird detail. Luke is a physician by trade, so maybe he's got some idiosyncrasies, perhaps like some physicians in the room here. But he was really careful to mention this twice as a sign. And it's fascinating to think of uh, what we do today, a swaddle. I'm a girl dad, so I got something with flowers. But this to me, four years ago, it was just like a blanket. (laughs) I didn't know what this was. But when our daughter came into the world, crying, longing for comfort, had a perfect world inside the womb, everything she needed, and then exposed to everything. We see Mary and Joseph and the angels and shepherds and the prophets around them. We see this treasure that they would see in the coming of Christ. And I love that the swaddling cloth is there as a detail because in Ezekiel 30, in Ezekiel 16, there's a beautiful picture we see in Israel who had gone their own way. They'd forsaken God. And God says, it's like you were born and you were left exposed. And he uses language about how they were neglected in their birth. And one of the things he says is you were not swaddled in a cloth. But at the end of that passage, when he talks about how he keeps his covenant, not because of their faithfulness, not because of what they've done, that God would wrap them in a swaddling cloth. So we see this treasure from God incarnate who would come near, that in response we would see him and we would behold him and it would shape us, but it all flows from the wonder. Let us not forget. Let us not grow numb to the wonder of our God that drew near. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. I am thankful, God, for every man and woman and child. Your faithfulness in their life, God, your providence of salvation. Lord, that we were far away, and Lord, even some in the room, they may not know you, they may not trust you. Lord, I pray you draw them near today. Lord, in the middle of so much pain and suffering and instability, God, would you draw us near to you? Lord, you came into the world and you lived the life we never could. You died the death we should and you rose in power to prove that you are who you said you are. Lord, we thank you for a simple gospel. And Lord, in this season, with the hustle and bustle, Lord, the commercialization of Christmas, would it not choke out, God, our ability to treasure you? that we would be like Mary, that we would treasure who you are and what you're doing and God, even what you'll do, that we would treasure it in our hearts. Lord, shape us, make us like you. And would we never, God, lose wonder in what you are, who you are, 
what you've come to do. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things in your great name, Christ. Amen. If you'll stand with me, this is one of my favorite weeks of the month where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Communion, that we can be together as one people brought near by his blood and by his coming. And we celebrate his finished work on the cross, his fulfillment of that coming. You'll follow the person in front of you. Our ushers will guide you to some leaders here. They'll make their way to the front and you'll get an ordinary cup and some ordinary bread. But the Lord in a divine way makes it an act of worship where he would say in 1 Corinthians, every time that you take this bread, remember my body given for you, broken for you. And every time you take this cup, remember the cup of the new covenants that he's come for us to be able to encounter him in full, to dwell with him daily, to treasure and to wonder. And this is for you, regardless of your church membership or denominational affiliation. If you're a guest or family, we're glad you're here. The only prohibition we would say is if you're not a believer, if you've not given your life to Jesus, then we'd prohibit you from eating and drinking judgment upon yourself is what the word tells us. But let's worship in song. Let's worship in the supper.